0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, virtual edition in the age of coronavirus. This is Cade Massey, hosting with my colleague and buddy, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator, marketing chair, longtime Wharton faculty, Eric Bradlow. Afternoon, Eric. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Yeah, long time. This is the big 2 5 for me this year 25 big ones at Wharton.
1: If you were working for General Electric back in the day, you get a watch or something, right? What are you going to get for 25 uh, years? I get a something. <laughs> get a I think something. I get
2: like a picture frame that I get to put, my, I don't know, some family photo in or something. But I get a 25-year something.
1: Good, good, good. Well, Audie and Shane are out doing Audie and Shane things at the moment. They will be back. We are coming to you via Zoom as we have been since March. This week, we're going to do one hour. We're going to do one hour with, um, with me and Eric talking about the current goings-on in sports. There are some goings-on. Eric, anything in particular catch your eye?
2: Well, before we get into any individual sport, something I was trying to look across the sports, because I've been watching, actually, this has been a golden time for me, because I've watched NCAA football, NBA, NHL, MLB. You know, I've been watching tennis. I've been watching everything over the last, you know, since our, our last show last week. And I started to wonder... Is there more variability this year? Like, for example, without getting too details, because we're also going to talk about college football, like I was watching the NSA football and like two top 10 teams lost and the third one, Texas, was very close to losing. Um, you look at the NBA, the Heat are the first five seed to make the NBA finals in like 20-something years. I look at MLB and I look at the teams that made the playoffs and I'm like, wow, some of these teams like the Miami Marlins, I mean, they, they weren't scheduled to make the playoffs. I look at the NHL. I don't know what odds you could have gotten, but I think Lightning versus Stars, I think you could have gotten pretty good odds that that was going to be the two teams in the finals. So I started to wonder, one part could be maybe the break in the season caused it. I don't say caused, but had an influence. The shorter season certainly in the MLB could have caused it. The lack of preseason uh, the lack of spring season football, if you'd like. So I'm just wondering, are we just, should we just expect a year of high variability? So that's what caught my eye across the sports.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. That's definitely a pattern we're seeing, and in some sports cases, I'm very thankful for it. I mean, we you know we lament on the show all the time how chalky the um, NBA playoffs tend to be, and then we speculated ahead of time that given the bubble and the break that we might expect the season to go less chocolatey than usual. And that's certainly what we've seen. I mean, there's been nothing not exciting about the NBA playoffs and to get Miami out of the East is really interesting and kind of convincingly out of the East at that. So undoubtedly on the, on the baseball, the other two sports are harder for me to say baseball, you know, weird things are always going on in June in baseball, you know, like at the, at, not even to the, not even at the all-star break. I mean, all the second half always looks different than the first half. You always had these kind of fluky first half teams. And I feel like we just kind of got, that's kind of where we are. We're seeing 60 game sample in baseball. And we know that any given game is just really noisy in baseball. Um, now I think that's probably good for the game. I mean, the Padres in the playoffs, who doesn't like the Padres in the playoffs, you know, we never see those guys around. So giddy up on that front but i really think it's a small sampling. on the other hand nhl i feel like we're always seeing fluky things happen in the nhl you're always seeing the eight seed advance or you know the number one get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs the nhl playoffs uh, it just feels really noisy i'm sure there's more empirics to back that up um now they've had some they've had some maybe this is a function of the noise as well eric i don't know but have we had more game 7s and 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 overtime games this year than than usual. I these playoffs we've had a number of good playoffs go deep. Maybe it's not that much higher than usual, but it feels like there've been some knife-edge outcomes in so- in it.
2: So So you brought up an interesting question, which is, so I posited the question, is there more variability? But there's no theorem that says how you would measure that. So one way you could measure it would be to say, okay, so how many upset teams, upsets have there been? Like, for example, just because someone doesn't make the finals doesn't mean there wasn't an upset, and that could add to the variability. We could look at the final outcomes you've mentioned, we could look at within game outcomes and see how many overtime games there have been, maybe even extra inning games. I don't know how many times, you know, the the money line has been, you know, not, has not held in various games. So I was just commenting that as statisticians, the concept of variability, I think everyone gets it in the English, you know, more variance, but how you actually measure it, it's not obvious to me that you, you know, what's the old joke, you'd put 10 statisticians in a room, you might get 10 different answers on this one.
1: Well, there's probably, you know, another approach would be if you're not sure the right way to do it, do it multiple ways. And one of my favorites on the unexpected outcomes in, in sports is how well the line, the betting line predicts the outcome. So for example, something, I, I've, an analysis I've always wanted to do and I've never done is this thing about rivalries in football. I and mean, let's just use football, for example, because that's the way I usually think about it. They say, you know, when, when, uh, when, Oklahoma plays Oklahoma state, throw the records out the window. And, you know, if that's true, then you should see that the betting line is less diagnostic in that series than other series. And then if that's true, you could actually compare rivalries. If it's, if it's an interesting quality in a rivalry that it's not predictable. And if that's kind of a desirable quality in a rivalry, it's not the only one, but you might say that's a desirable quality. Now we could compare rivalries and say, for which rivalries is the betting line more or less predictive? How's that? Do you like that? You're asking for ways of doing it. How's
2: that? I, I, I do like that a lot. Um, my question was going to be from, a, from someone, not me, you, from someone who, you know, spends a fair amount of his time working on Massey Peabody. Is it possible that such an arbitrage opportunity actually exists? Like I, I just, for, I find it impossible, even though you say you've never done the analysis. If this were true, that, oh, pay less attention to the betting line when Oklahoma plays Oklahoma state or Mississippi plays Mississippi state or Alabama. Come on. You're you're telling me we wouldn't know this by now. I just find it hard to believe that that given it's not an implausible hypothesis that someone wouldn't have studied it and it would have been out in the, you know, the vapor of the lore of betting.
1: Yeah. So one I'm, I'm, I'm kind of entertained by that general line of reasoning about sports betting because people have been saying that about sports betting generally for a long time. And yet, people, some people, a select few, there are people who make a living beating the market. You know, it's the same thing as people said about efficient financial markets for decades. Um, can you really beat it well? You know, most people can't, but some people can. And I remember when you just mentioned Massey Peabody, Rufus Peabody was a student at Yale and he wanted to go into baseball betting, my good friend and, 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 you know, genius, basically, Nick Barbaris, finance professor at Yale, Nick was like, Nick is even behavioral finance. And Nick was like, surely there aren't anomalies to be exploited in the sports betting market. Surely Rufus is wasting his time. This is a behavioral finance guy speculating about the sports betting market that, there's, that is so efficient. It's like, turns out it wasn't that efficient, that Rufus could go... Almost, I mean, basically straight to Las Vegas and make a living as a sports better. Now, what's true is, Eric, it's getting more efficient all the time. I mean, this, you talk to these guys who've been in the market, it's like, it is a different game now than it was even five years ago, much less 10 or 20 years ago. So it is trending towards efficiency, just like the financial markets do. But um, there are still inefficiencies. And uh, the, this thing that we're just talking about, the rivalries, it's not as obvious what that would, like what, what arbitrage there is there i mean so it's less noisy that doesn't mean it's biased it doesn't mean it's known ahead of time what would predict it right maybe yeah i don't i don't know i don't know that that gives you a real big opportunity other than if you've got some inside information it might be more there might be more of an advantage or an edge to it let
2: me just try to let me try to give an envelope answer to that question so let's imagine you have team a playing team b I'll, i'll use i think your example was oklahoma oklahoma state right and let's imagine Oklahoma would be normally favored in the game, okay? Let's just pick any betting line you want. Let's say they'd be favored by 10 points, okay? And so there's an, assumed, there's an assessed probability of A B beating B under that line. But now let's assume there's a fatter distribution because there's greater uncertainty. So now, while it may not be unbiased, if there's more variance there, then the probability of A beating B goes down. And now I have an opportunity, if I can measure that fatter distribution, like everyone else thinks the standard deviation is still 14, and I now think it's 20. Well, that means underdog betting in larger spreads seems to me like it would be a higher probability because there's more mass in the tails and therefore that might be an arbitrage opportunity. Now, maybe that's already built in. Maybe the market is efficient and it figures that out. But just if the, if the mean stays the same and the variance goes up, the odds go up for the, for the lower team.
1: Hold on, is that true? I'm feeling, I'm feeling stupid all of a sudden. In a two-team competition, is that going to be true? Why is there, the masses going up on... The favorite winning by a lot at the same time that the mass is going up on the underdog winning.
2: I would just think that. So let's think of the mean difference between the two being 10, and now the standard deviation goes, and let's just say 10 to 20. Yeah. So, no, you might be right. Maybe it's just because it's symmetric. Maybe both sides get an equal bump on both sides of the distribution. Around, exactly, I'm
1: just. Be symmetric around that expected outcome.
2: Yeah, it would have to be symmetric around that expected outcome. And that seems you're right. That would seem maybe to balance it out. I don't know. It's an interesting question to look at.
1: Well, another thing to look at, Eric, to address your initial question about do do are things more unexpected for COVID-related reasons? Let's forget we're kind of looking at it top down. Let's look at it bottom up. What would you expect to see on the courts and on the field if this was the case and one thing from football you might expect and and i i, I don't know if we have a way of measuring this bill connelly in his article just talked about it a little bit but anecdotally it sure does seem like special team play has been spottier and higher variance um in college football at least and maybe even in professional football and that would you might expect that if you know coaches are always kind of scrambling to protect time for special team in practice and you could imagine in a compressed practice schedule you compromise it even more. And so, I mean, I just watched the Texas-Texas Tech game this weekend, which had every possible variation on a special teams play. So I, I don't mean to just reason from that anecdote, but I'm asking, you watch a lot of these sports. You know, when you watch the NBA, do you think you see play that's any different because of the interruption? Did, did, the, did the warm-up time, of the, did, did, they, did the first eight games after the bubble Look like the first eight games of, this, of the season, which are always kind of famously noisy. Are there anything you see in the play that you think contributes to that kind of variance?
2: So the NBA is a strange case, because remember, um, the teams had already played like 60-some-odd games, and those count. Right. So right. it's not like it was eight games starting at 0-0. It was eight games starting at some record. And for like, obviously for the Lakers, those eight games meant nothing since they had the one seed locked up, and therefore <laughs> right. it didn't really affect them. Um, yeah, I mean... I, I think of it also a different way, especially in longer series. You know that you know, um, as you saw, even in, it didn't happen in this in the last series against Denver. But you know, um, the Lakers lost the first game to Utah, and then LeBron said, "Oh, no worries, I'm going to figure this out." And then they won the next four. They lost the first game to whatever Portland. I guess Portland was first. They lost that game, then they won the next four. And so my view is that um, yeah, it probably does take some time for teams to kind of get to their peak performance level. Um, I think teams are certainly there in the NBA now. Um, In the NFL, I've seen a lot of really bad football so far.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, last night looked like some good football, mostly. Uh, That was was a lot of fun, at least up until the fourth quarter when we saw a a fumble kind of really change the game. But there were they, those are look like to me two really good teams trading blows, but maybe I'm missing something.
2: Well, I, I'd be very interested to hear what Massey Peabody said. Um, I'm I'm so down now. Maybe just because they beat the Bucks and I saw the entire first game of the season, I'm not that positive right now on Drew Brees. Yeah. Um, his his statistics, if you look at his advanced metrics, they're really poor. I mean, you might as well take away one pass for 70 yards, which Alvin Kamara broke like 18 tackles on. It was a screen pass, and he broke every tackle and scored a touchdown. So
1: um, – Hold hold on. Just on that one point, even that point, let me push a little bit. And and this is a little bit where the announcers were last night as well. We are, of course, talking about the Packers and Saints and the Sunday night game Packers. It was toe-to-toe for a while, then the Packers pulled out at the end. But – what, to what extent is that game is that their game and and to what extent does Bruise, breeze's ability to exploit anywhere you know use his smarts to exploit different parts of the field open up those opportunities for Camara? to what extent do you give him credit for you know i think that was like his third or fourth read and he had to stay active in order to get it i don't think it's quite fair to rob him of all credit for that even though clearly kamara's run was amazing
2: yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, you could see clearly this was at best his third read, maybe his fourth, and he gets credit for that. Um, I don't remember one throw down the field. Let's say usually they define it as greater than 15 yards where I was like, wow, you know, this guy's got zip on the ball. I just think it's it's one of those things. I think as the season progresses um, – teams, not that they haven't realized it, but they're going to start, you know, pressing up towards the line. They're going to cover those passes even more. And I, I, I don't know a scenario. Maybe it happened to be looked good to look at. I don't see a scenario where um, Drew Brees arm strength improves as the season
1: goes yeah, on. Yeah, Right. We've seen it kind of seems like it fade in the, in the past. And of course, you know, people are picking up on this and um, it's definitely a topic of conversation. We have been big on the saints from the beginning. We've had them number one in the league and that's kind of blasphemous in the era of Mahomes and Jackson so I'll be very curious to see what the numbers look like after last night we don't have the new Rufus uh, Rufus does all the does okay. all the work in season and most of the work out of season and we've got updates for all the games but for last night so uh, we will they, they surely have drifted down some but I don't know yet how much by the way I mean so we're recording this on Monday a few hours before kickoff on one of the most anticipated matches of the of the early season certainly and one of the most anticipated of the full season so kansas city and baltimore tonight any quick thought on on
2: that i was just the only thing that surprised me is and by the way i'm you know people want to give too much what i'll call outcome effect like how could baltimore be favored in this game well first of all they're at home although we can debate how much home field is worth this year right. but i mean it's like well kansas city's the champ right well that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be that much favored over Baltimore. I think Baltimore is like a three-and-a-half-point favorite. They
1: are. that's right.
2: Yeah, and so that would say on a neutral field, they're about even, or maybe Baltimore's a little bit favored. I don't see that incongruous with the data. I don't see it incongruous with last season's performance. Even if you looked at priors, I don't see any reason why Kansas City would be a huge favorite over Baltimore. So my gut reaction is um, I actually think – Baltimore's got a very good chance in this game. I, I think Baltimore, I, I like the line. I think it's about right. I think Baltimore should be favored in this game.
1: Well, um, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. We're, we're very much of the same mind. Um, we, we have them um, on a neutral field, about a two and a half point favorite, actually. So we like the Ravens a fair bit better than the Chiefs. Right now numbers two and three in the NFL. Um, and then you, the old two and a half point line for home field, isn't really what it used to be these days. So, we're probably not far from market on that. Now, we have trouble with young quarterbacks. We admit that we have trouble getting young quarterbacks right. It's really hard to model them independently of the offenses. If you use quarterbacks over time in general, they get better over time. And so you, you don't expect as much as we're seeing from Mahomes in particular, but also from Lamar Jackson. But I, I love the fact that the Ravens are three-and-a-half-point favorites. I'm not – but, Eric, you know, I just think that um, this, the separation between Mahomes and Jackson, I don't understand it. When, I, when I've watched, especially this year, you know, we, you and I talked on this show a couple of weeks ago about is Mahomes going to regress. Like, well, he might regress, but, it, but also the, the mean to which he's regressing is probably improving because this is only his third year in the league. Same with Lamar Jackson. And if you, I think if you watch these guys back-to-back, at least so far this year, you watch these guys back-to-back they do the same thing. Lamar Jackson does the same thing as Pat Mahomes. I just think, in fact, that he makes it look a little bit easier and maybe he gets less credit because he does make it look easier.
2: It's an interesting thing. You know, one of the things I'm sure you guys, since well, uh, you introduced me as the chair of the marketing department, you're one of the faculty directors of the People Analytics Initiative at the school. And one of the things I always say is that when you invest in people, you invest in the slope, not the intercept. Mm -hmm. And if you asked Mm -hmm. me right now, which of the two quarterbacks Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson has more upside to go. I not by the way, Maybe Mahomes is the greatest quarterback of all time, so there's no upside anywhere. I'd have to say Lamar Jackson. Wow. I just think, I, I think Lamar Jackson is uh, an incredibly talented player. He was, I mean, I do not want to say awful, but he basically couldn't throw the football when he came out of college. I mean, they that's, didn't too throw,
1: strong. that's too I, strong.
2: I said, basically, he wasn't a great pocket quarterback. How about that? Right. And now um, I, I'm very, very bullish. On Lamar Jackson. I, you know, I put this way, I think they will both have phenomenal careers. I think Mahomes is probably the better pure passer, but in terms of the total package, I would take either of them right now. I'd probably still, and by the way, I don't know if it's because they drafted a quarterback in the first round or not, but Aaron Rodgers looks like a bad man right now. he I don't know if he's angry because they drafted a quarterback, but yeah. it looks like the old Aaron Rodgers to me. So after last mm. night's game, I will say, I'd still rather have Aaron Rodgers than any – and by the way, I might also put Russell Wilson up there higher yeah. than anybody else. But think of this great time we're looking – we have, we have oh, Rodgers, yeah. we have Wilson, we have Jackson, we have Mahomes. You know, yeah. it's just – people are talking about Kyler Murray. It's just uh, – you know, it's, it's an unbelievable time of great – quarterbacks
1: yeah and to see Rodgers doing that i mean uh it, and and it, it feels like he's he's back and even maybe even better i mean there was he was really slinging around yesterday and then to see russell wilson a little bit unleashed you know for out of necessity or not just to see him throwing the ball so much more is, is great fun. Look, if so. Pete look, here's the way I view it. If Pete
2: Carroll just to show you how great in my view Russell Wilson is. If Pete Carroll doesn't make maybe the dumbest call in the history of the Super Bowl when you have Marshawn Lynch from the 1-yard line and throw that pick to New England. Seattle and Russell Wilson have two rings, back-to-back mm-hmm. back rings. Right, right. And yeah. Maybe he wins another or two in the last five or six years. Also, who knows? All I'm commenting on is we might be talking about Russell Wilson as a two-time, he's still a one-time, but he'd be a two-time Super Bowl champion, and he's only 29 or 30 years old. I mean, we might be talking about him as maybe he wins four or five in his career.
1: Well, you make an important point. It's, and I mean, we do talk about him. We do pass judgments, and we know what happened there, and we know that he's not really responsible – you can't I mean he threw the pig, but you probably want to give him some fraction between one and two Super Bowls if you're going to ask how good he is, because in expectation that's like one and a half Super Bowls or 1.75 or 1.9. It's not one and yet we, we reason about them in these hyper categorical hyper discrete ways.
2: Yeah, no, no, I'm with you. look, that's why I've said, you know, we know Shane has always been a big Patriot and and, uh, Tom Brady fan. I've always said, you know, six and three is about right. You know, people say, oh, the Patriots shouldn't have won that Super Bowl. All right, well... Maybe they shouldn't have lost both Giants Super Bowls. And maybe against the right. Eagles, while well, I'm thrilled totally. that the Eagles won, um, Brady threw for over 500 yards. And I'm not sure through an incomplete pass in that game, basically. So six and three totally. is about right. I'm hoping. Look, I'm hoping Russell Wilson gets another. Um, not, a, not at the cost of the Buccaneers, but I'm hoping he gets another <laughs> because to me, this is a winner. I, it's a winning quarterback.
1: So you mentioned the Eagles and I got to hear your thoughts on what has not looked like a very good team so far. And I know they've been ravaged by injuries, but do you have anything beyond that to say about them? They lost again last night
2: or yesterday. Well, they tied a game yesterday. And so I, 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 yeah, I was, (laughs) I could not believe. The Bengals
1: and first year quarterback. Yeah. And
2: that's, but that's not even it. I can't even believe the calling of plays near the end of that game. Um, It was terrible play call. and by the way this morning doug peterson on the radio admitted he botched that call. he basically at the end was playing for a tie and we're like what are you doing and then even
1: if he you hey, tell us the details tell us i was not watching at the end so i don't know the play call tell us what happened
2: all right so the score was 23 all in overtime there was about a minute left the eagles had no timeouts okay they're at the Bengals, it's got to be about 43 yard line so it's a 60 yard field goal remember no timeouts he runs a running play up the middle for one yard. Okay. Not throw to the sideline, not anything. So now the clock's ticking down to about 30, 25 seconds. And then eventually they end up not even throwing the ball down the field. And so they're like, they're going to bank on a 59 yard field goal to win the game. And then on that play is a false start penalty. So now it's a 64 yard field goal, which they don't try. And with 15 seconds left or 20 seconds left, he punts the ball.
1: Oh, my God.
2: So that is now,
1: magically bad. Are you kidding me?
2: I mean, so it, it just made no sense. So he's like, I'm giving away any chance of winning. I can't win. And if something fluky happens, the other team could win. But, like, I'm not even going to go for a pass to try to gain 15 yards to get a first down to try to win the game. I mean, it just he, he botched the call. He was going to settle. Everyone could tell he was settling, not for a 40-yard field goal to win the game, a 59-yarder to win the but, game. Eric,
1: is that? do you think that was out of conservatism? He didn't want to take a risk that might have turned the ball over? Is that where he was coming from? I mean, why are you that concerned? If you think you can make the field goal from 60, why don't you at least take a shot or two to get it down to I I, I, I don't have any The only reason good... I come up with is if you're worried, if you're just hyper risk-averse about turning the ball over. Wow, Look, that's, I, you know, he gets a lot of credit for me. aggression and analytics, and that's, that's disappointing to hear. Um, you know, in, in football, it just feels like there's so much return for a policy of aggressiveness in all of your calls. And it has to, but it has to be a policy because it's not always going to go in your favor. And so if you back off, as soon as it doesn't go in your favor, it's not going to do any good. You need a large sample of these aggressive calls for those edges to compile into a real advantage. And we thought Peterson was geared up that way, but, but, you know, let's not him too heavily. He made a mistake. Um, Eric, just in the last couple of minutes of this half, we've been talking about football a little bit. Anything else from this past weekend that really jumped out to you?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, we've now seen two weeks in a row where the Falcons first to York. I don't York Cowboys first to the Cowboys They were way up in the fourth quarter. I think they had a 98% chance to win. This weekend, they even had a 99% chance of winning. So the thing I was thinking of, let's just call them each one in 100, 99%. If you multiply the two together, that's one in 10,000. Now, one in 10,000 events don't happen that often. And by the way, this has never happened before. But then I started to think, is it a rare event? Or maybe our model is just bad. And so, you know, we can talk about this more broadly over the next 10 years of Warren Moneyball, but maybe when we observe probabilistically really extreme events, we should start to question our model. And so Mm -hmm. I started to wonder, maybe that 99% ESPN win probability, maybe they just weren't right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, yet it takes a lot of observations to be calibrated at that end of the scale, right? If you're going to distinguish between 99 and 995 how many observations do you need to be able to distinguish those two things?
2: Right, but your point is the right one, which is if, that, if those two probabilities are both 97 instead of 99, which doesn't seem like a lot, well, it, it changes the odds from one in 10,000 to one in 1,000. And mm-hmm. now I'm not saying, I mean, people say, well, one in a thousand is still rare. Yeah. But one in 10,000 is much more rare. So that's yeah, just yeah. my point. And you're right. It just needs a lot of data. So as I was watching the Falcons blow it again, I was just like, is this one in 10,000 or maybe we need to rethink of our models in the tails?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good idea. It's a good, it's a good caveat in general for data these days, because as happy as we are that, you know, national broadcasts are now putting numbers like you know, whatever the number might be, the expected completion percentage or something. That's lovely that it's in the conversation now and everything seems advanced, but it doesn't come with those um, uncertainty <laughs> caveats that they deserve. They don't come with the confidence intervals around that thing. And so it gets overstated, essentially, over, over precise, overconfidence in those numbers. And, you know, that's the trade-off because we're never going to have that kind of nuance on TV and we'll probably take that trade-off, but it's a good thing for us to keep in mind and we don't it, and have, it also opinion. means
2: just like I said last week, when I said, I don't understand why the Cowboys are so much highly rated than the Falcons. I mean, the Falcons are zero and three. Okay. But they were right there. Potentially yeah. you could argue they should have beaten the Cowboys uh, yeah. this week too. They were right there uh, yeah. with the bears. And so now you have to start to say, you know, maybe they're not a horrible zero and three.
1: Now they're, I mean, it's hard to believe they are. They've been a great franchise for a long time. It's the same organization. Um, with great quarterback, but um, you know, football's brutal and small samples are even more brutal. We've got three games in. Um, All right, fellas, let's step away for a break. We have more Wharton Moneyball to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition coming to you via zoom. This a one hour version. Eric Bradlow and Cade Massey here talking sports analytics where we are um, rolling into the second half hour now, We've got still plenty to talk about in fact, we haven 't even touched on college football we 'll do that before the end of the half hour, but before we get to that, a couple of quick quick hitters, Eric. Um, how surprised andor chagrined were you that Miami made it through i 'm always sad to see Brad Stevens and the Celtics in their season.
2: Yeah, I was kind of rooting for the Celtics only because um, I see a team with just tremendous talent and a well-coached team, and they just kind of – it happens. They just kind of lost their way in the series. I just Mm -hmm. think what made them strong um, didn't work out well. I don't think they exploited their advantages that they had. And the other thing I think is that – and this could give the – this will get to the second topic, which is their chances against the Lakers. Those guards on the Heat, uh, Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero – Those two guys can play, and you start to think, um, who's given the Lakers trouble? It's kind of fast guards that can shoot, and so I think it's a fascinating series where I think the Lakers are going to have a tremendous advantage on the front line. Well, anytime you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, you have a tremendous advantage on the front line, but I think the Heat are going to have an advantage in the backcourt, And that's the great, you know, what is it? Immovable force versus, you know, a rock kind of thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting difference in styles. Uh, But yeah, I mean, as someone that hates Boston growing up in New York, I wasn't that upset that the Celtics (laughs) lost. But, you know, it's such an interesting team there. And I'm hoping at some point the team does win it. Because, you know, uh, Jason Tatum is an incredible player. And I hope they build an appropriate team around him.
1: If you had to bet the finals Lakers minus four hundred or the heat, which way would you go because that's a long that's a that's a or i should say a really short line for the Lakers
2: yeah um if I had to bet it, I think I would take the Lakers at minus four hundred oh, really? despite i just again I go back to. Do can't I think, things
1: happen? I mean, can't injuries happen? Doesn't that not bake in the inherent? So that would have
2: to be – it, it would have to be an injury of some sort. You know, obviously the Lakers, if Anthony Davis got injured or LeBron got injured, that would dramatically – or, of course, someone on the Heat could get injured, although it's not obvious maybe Jimmy Butler. It's not obvious who on the Heat would change their odds that much. I just think let's, – let's just say for the moment we eliminate injury. I just think LeBron James in a seven-game series – I mean, this is this is what you got to beat them four times, and yes. this isn't. You know, they're my, Miami's great, but it's not. I mean, the greatest team of all time, in my view, then in my lifetime, uh, maybe I'll go back to the Bulls. Fine, the the Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, etc. They couldn't beat LeBron James, no. and now LeBron James has Anthony Davis. By I just think you give LeBron James enough time in the series and he's going to figure it out and I don't think he's afraid of anybody on the Miami Heat and I don't know who is going to take LeBron James on the Miami Heat if I had to bet I'm not going to but if I had to bet I would take the Lakers but I agree with you that minus 400 is a scary number that's an implied odds of 80 percent that seems like you know I don't know but yeah I would I would take the Lakers
1: okay NHL the Stars won Two nights ago, to hang in there, They're, they need another win to force a game seven. They're playing the Lightning, of course. Playoff hockey, you know, they won that in overtime the other night. Playoff hockey is so great. Playoff overtime hockey, playoff it was overtime. Double
2: over, double overtime
1: in an elimination game. I mean, that's that's some pretty. And remember stuff.
2: what was also exciting about that game? Since you know, I have some Tampa relatives, and I was watching the game. The Lightning were up two to one with yeah. six minutes left in the game. And so, you know, they were six minutes from winning the cup. And this is the part I was going to talk about, which is, so I just looked up the betting odds to win win the series. The Lightning are minus 560. I'm thinking, what? How's that possible? Like, even even if you just, here's the envelope math for everybody. Let's imagine that Dallas is a 50% odds to win tonight and 50% to win the next game. Well, first of all, that gives them a 25% which means it should be minus 300. So that's our deviation. Our baseline, you would think, is minus 300 roughly, and we're at minus 560. So that means they're probably somewhere around an 83, 84% chance of winning the series. That just seems way, way, way too high to me, which would be, well, let's even just do a little math. If they were an 80% chance they'd have to be like a 70% chance or something to win this game. It just seemed, that seemed way, way too high to me. And you know, I'm a momentum guy. So this was my <laughs> other question. If Dallas wins, and I, by the way, I spent a lot of time before the show trying to find this data. If a listener has it, please uh, tweet it to us at, at w In the times where a team down three, one has forced a game seven, I only want to look at those series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What fraction of time does that team win game seven? I couldn't find it quickly. I really wanted to know the answer because, you know, my momentum story, which I always talk about, would suggest it's probably greater than 50%. Now, of course, it could depend on whether they were up 3-1 with home ice on game seven or home court on game seven. But I would think if the Stars win this game, they've got to be – I don't think got to be at worst 50 50 in game seven, despite, I mean, at worst,
1: you know, you can tell uh, the, the boring non momentum story is a non-stationarity story. And you say, if a team wins games five and six to four, seven, odds are something structural change, like a player's out or a new tender is in or something like that and that's that's a that the series has this the, the the probability has changed but it's not so much a momentum thing as it was a structural shift of some kind.
2: Well let me ask you the following question. If the how much would you put on price Let's imagine the Stars win game 6 and I tell you right now I don't know what the number is but let's say I told you they had the lightning favored minus 160 in the final game. Wouldn't that be surprising to you? Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean at at that point you you know given you know Non-stationarity or momentum or whatever, just a 3-3 record, neutral ice, it's hard to move much off of 50-50. But, you know, that's us rubes sitting here from a distance not knowing anything about what's actually happening on the ice. But still, I wouldn't expect it to be very far from 50-50 at that point, if you do get to that point.
2: And that's why um, I was surprised to see the lightning minus 560. Because remember, we can both do, you know, no, humans aren't great good. at 15 steps ahead, but we can both do the counterfactual. If Dallas wins tonight, well, then it is game seven. So we both yeah. agree the next step can't be worse than 50-50 if it ever gets you know,
1: there. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know, because let's go back to the, the, the famous thing Nate Silver said about the March Madness predictions years ago. He said in March Madness, his secret sauce was preseason polls. And the insight there was, even after a full season of college basketball, you still don't really know the quality of the team. And your prior your prior in September or October before the season started is still informative. And the, the analog here would be, fine, 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 Eric, but what if we told you the Lightning was by power? I don't know this. This is surely not true, but let me just tell a story. Say the Lightning was the number one power-ranked team at the end of the regular season, um, and that the Stars were – you know, the number 12 power ranks team at the end of the regular season. Those are your priors coming into the playoffs. Do you really want to just jettison those altogether? No, you're right. I mean, I'm looking right
2: now. The the Lightning ended up with the second most points in the Eastern Conference this season. And the um, Dallas Stars ended up with the fifth most. Yeah, so they were the two and the five seed. And so... Yeah, I mean, you're right. Pryors would suggest that uh, the Lightning should be somewhat of a favorite, even at 3-3, even even if momentum exists. We all agree. It's a tiny effect, hard to observe. You're right. There's no reason that the five seed should be favored over the two seed at 3-3. No.
1: All right. So let's talk a little bit about – well, before we go to my favorite sport, you've got something about the – French Open. The French Open in, in September, of course. the French Open in October, of course. What's going on over there? Well,
2: it just started yesterday. It's actually a fifteen day tournament, unlike the other majors that are fourteen. So they just it started yesterday, which was a Sunday. Um, and you know, there were some upsets. No major major upsets, but definitely some upsets so far. Um, the thing that surprised me was the betting odds that Nadal is the favorite, and he's under one to one. He's a five to six, and I'm thinking. Have they been watching Djokovic play this year so far? The only thing that has stopped him so far is, you know, accidentally hitting a ball into the throat of a ball person. He probably would have won the U.S. Open. That's his only loss on the entire season, including the Rome tournament last week on clay where he won that tournament. And so, yeah, so, you know, um, he's five to six. The other shock I have, by the way, on the other side of it, so Nadal is five to six, Djokovic is two to one, I think they're discrediting theme, Dominic. Theme. By the way, who won the U.S. Open? But yeah, forget yeah, about right. that for a second. He, not Djokovic. He's been in the French Open finals the last two years. Okay. Theme, including theme beating Djokovic last year in the yeah, semifinals right. of the French Open. And so, to me, I'm not clear why theme isn't somewhere near Djokovic. I put this way, I'd rather bet on theme at seven to two than Djokovic right yeah. now at two to one.
1: You just talked me into that being the most interesting bet of those three and maybe an actual interesting bet. Good fun, good fun. Um, speaking of good fun, college football got um, off uh, in a more full slate this past weekend. The SEC joined, joined the rest of the, the teams playing, and, and, and instantly we had interesting thing happen. So Florida managed to, managed to make it past Ole Miss. Um, uh, on the other hand, Mississippi State took down defending champion LSU. Now LSU between, between guys graduating, guys getting drafted, guys declaring for the draft, guys being ineligible for a variety of reasons. We're down to three returning starters. Can you imagine three? Out three of 22? out of 22. Three out of 22, including I believe all of their, I mean, you know, most of their defensive backfield and, Mississippi State has this grad transfer quarterback from Stanford. They have Mike Leach. Mike Leach has probably never had a quarterback of this quality, and he sets the SEC game record for passing yards, taking down LSU in the process. Beautifully, amazingly, wonderfully. Also, Oklahoma went down to Kansas State in their conference opener. Kansas State is kind of the – Kansas State is to Oklahoma what Texas Tech is to Texas. They just – they win games they shouldn't win. They can't – they just often trip them up. And um, it's back to your opening point, Eric. That there's just more variance, especially maybe especially with college football. These guys are so not. So let me just ask you
2: before we get to Texas or Texas a and which were also close games, in this shortened season, and and possibly and I think no interleague play really. Does this basically eliminate Oklahoma and LSU? Like they're out now,
1: right? I don't think so. Um, it's if if we've learned anything from college football, you don't. Throw teams out this early in the season. I mean, Ohio State won a national championship after losing game two. I know, but it's a short season.
2: season. So, are they going to have as many opportunities to show their greatness? And are they playing? I don't even know. You probably know better than I do. Like, is LSU playing? Like, can they play? Are they playing the top teams that would give them the ability to show that they're better than Alabama, Auburn? Mm -hmm. You know, pick all the other great teams in the SEC.
1: Yeah, fine. So, um, I mean, mostly I still believe college football is sufficiently unpredictable that it's too early to dismiss people. But you've, you're, you've named some features that are definitely relevant this year. LSU's challenge isn't can they prove it. They could certainly prove it. They went out. They went out. They are in the playoffs, I can promise you. But I can also promise you they are not going to win out. There's no chance. So I would eliminate um, LSU in terms of expectations just because they've got too tough a road in front of them and they're not what they were last year. No, There's no way they could be. Oklahoma... I mean it's an argument about the Big 12 who has not looked good so far. They lost 3 Sunbelt games, 3 in one weekend last weekend. And like you said, there aren't many interconference games this year and so the chances of a conference making its case that you don't have many chances and they blew their chances. So everybody says, well, it's a two team league. Texas and Oklahoma and then Oklahoma goes out and loses and Texas does its best to lose. And so the conference is just really looking weak, you know, and that might've been okay before the big 10 jumped back in before the PAC 12 jumped in, but now they're going to be competing for those rare four spots. Well, with I other was going to ask you,
2: um, obviously I, by the way, it's amazing how much of that Texas game I watched and the, uh, Oklahoma game. If you're a Texas fan, I'm going to say something. I know it sounds crazy. You had to be rooting for Oklahoma,
1: right? No, no matter what, ever. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> it's, better Texas, if you're a Texas fan. it's
2: better for Texas to beat a higher ranked Oklahoma team if Texas wants to go to the yeah, promised there's, land.
1: There's, 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 you know, it's like a means end thing. It's like, can you ju- you're justifying the means uh, on the end, and you can't be promised the end. You don't know what's going to happen. You think you're pulling for Oklahoma, then you know, one twist leads to another, and then they win the damn conference down the road because they won a game they shouldn't have won. You just never pull for your biggest rival, especially it's mainly, it comes down to recruiting, Eric. Texas goes head-to-head against Oklahoma all the time. The stronger Oklahoma is, the harder it is for Texas to recruit, and so you just don't want them to look good ever. Now, of course, it might end up hurting Texas in the end. Texas needs some tough competition and then to win everything in order to make a case but i you know if texas i would claim that texas still has its destiny in its own hands if they go undefeated and win the big 12 you're telling me an undefeated big 12 champion texas wouldn't be in the playoff i don't i
2: don't are they having just i I don't even know you would know the answer are they having all the postseason tournaments like they normally do too like they're having a big 12 championship game an sec championship game those are all happening
1: those are all happening, but Eric, you'll love it. The Big Ten is doing more than that. You said end-of-season tournament, which is a silly thing to say about college football, but in fact, the Big Ten is having an end-of-season tournament. They, you'll love this, Eric. They are not only playing the East number one against the West number one for the Big Ten championship. They're going to play East two against West two, East three against West three, all down to East seven against West seven. They all get a final game against their counterpart on the opposite um, division. Isn't that great?
2: I think that is absolutely wonderful. I think it is. And it also, um, it leads to more data and more refined ranking. And yeah. I think, you know, in future, year, well, in this year too, it's not like there's only going to be the national championship bowl game. First of all, it means for a team, number one, where you end up in the Big Ten, East or West, really matters it matters then winning that last game because that gets you to a better, more prestigious bowl game, even if it's not the national championship game. I think it's the right incentive structure. And I think it's also, to me, honestly, just as a fan, it's a more ceremonious end to a season. Yeah, for sure. And I love you it. get to play like you're in a playoff game. Who cares yeah. if it's five versus five, it's still a playoff game.
1: Well, we say that, but it is a little ignominious. What's the word? Ignominious. be seven versus seven. I mean, that's a little like the walk of shame. You have to come out and play for true last place. That is fairly entertaining. Eric, I have to tell you on the Texas Texas Tech game, because I think it's a sports watching, I'd be curious what other people have experienced, but I was teaching almost the exact time of the game. And so I knew that I wasn't going to watch the game live. What I've learned about the team I care most about, which is Texas Longhorn football, is that it's just it kills me to watch the they're in so many close games they lose games they shouldn't have won it just kills me what i do i basically often don't watch the game live by the way college football takes forever to watch live and so it's better to watch it on dvr if they win i watch the game afterwards i enjoy it immensely if they lose i often just don't even watch it it's like that's too painful to watch. do you
2: know the outcome of the game before you watch
1: it? okay yes this is the thing this the claim here is that it is you don't lose any pleasure in fact if you're if you're like me and you're 13 years old inside when you're pulling for your team, it's actually better off to not watch it live in these. So tech, I could I would have watched this game live because I wasn't worried about it, but I was teaching. And so now the whole world is going crazy on my phone while I'm teaching because they're not it's not going the way it's supposed to go. But Eric, by the time I sat down to watch this game, I knew I knew they won in overtime. And I got to watch this ridiculous, horrible, completely convoluted, ridiculous thing happen with great pleasure. And I was it was like oh my God, what's gonna happen next? How could it possibly turn out that way given what I'm looking at? I would have died to watch that game. game. I would have literally killed over.
2: The only thing counter to you is that I know there's a large number of empirical studies that show that sports is one of those unique things that people hate watching it recorded. It's because they know other people know the outcome of the game. This has been studied over and over and over again.
1: I'm, I'm remembering a different study. I'm remembering something, Leif Nelson, I think Joe Simmons might have been on it, but Leif was on it, where they studied, and they found that the pleasure of watching a game while you knew the outcome was not diminished. Like, shockingly, it was not diminished. And that is exactly my experience. Now, I think it insulates you. If you know they're going to lose, it's just you, you don't get as worked up about it. But if you know they're going to win, it's actually quite pleasurable. It's quite enjoyable to sit there. I sat there with my father-in-law, having drinks late into the night, just kind of this wonderful ride we were on, we knew exactly how it was going to end and we still got to kind of watch it as it goes.
2: I think, let me just say the following. I think if you told me the shape of the, I'll call it utility curve as a defunction of utility on the Y-axis and anxiousness on the X-axis, I'll tell you the answer to that question. Um, To me, that is what, like, I don't need, I'm not even a Texas fan, but I know you are. So I was watching this game so nervous for you. (laughs) And I wasn't, I had no horse in this race. I was just thinking, you know, so, wow! It would be great for Kate if Texas comes and backs and win the, comes back and win this game. I was excited, and it, it made it exciting for me.
1: Well, we talked about those those in game probabilities and the in game probability. Texas got the ball back on their end of the field with three something left in the game, down fifteen. Right, and 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 Texas Tech's win probability, according to ESPN, at that point was ninety nine point eight.
2: I remember seeing that on the screen, and I was thinking that just also doesn't seem seems too, probably, high. Yeah, seems too high, way too high.
1: Well, um, you know, Eric, this this watch it live because of anxiety, watch it tape because of anxiety. Uh, I don't think I'm going to watch this the first debate tomorrow night uh, I, I don't I think I would rather wait to <laughs> find out what moments I need to go back and watch. I think I'll be too anxious, and it reminds me a little bit, you know you've had a lot of job candidates on the job market before, or you've known friends or whatever who come in to give a talk. And it is so anxiety inducing to watch a good friend, give a talk, even if they're good. It's just the risk. You're going for an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20, the risk of something not going well is so anxiety producing. Now, maybe I'm just a child. Maybe I need to grow up, but, or maybe I'm being honest with myself about the experience. And this is something I've learned and this is wise. I don't know, but that's definitely my situation.
2: I'll just say I I'm just scouring my brain. I don't think I've ever taped and watched a sporting event. You know, I've watched replays. Like, unfortunately, I've watched the replay, let's say, of the 2001 Game 7 Yankees versus Diamondbacks way too many times. (laughs) And it's painful every single time I watch. Like, I just have to remind myself how unlucky in some ways the Yankees were to lose that series and Rivera gets the blame, whatever. I don't think I've ever done what you just did, which is not know the result taped a sporting event and watched it. Never, in my entire life, I've never done that. I would have to, but I'm not saying I haven't watched it. I would have to go look at the score beforehand. I could not watch, yeah, a, I would I have to know the results. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's the point that you actually know the outcome and the surprising, and I go back, I give Leif Nelson credit for this. To me, I couldn't believe it when I saw the result for him, and this was years ago. And now I just 100% believe it. It doesn't diminish. In fact, in some ways it enhances the experience. Unless you really, it's all about the revelation. That has to be really good to offset the anxiety. But if we,
2: you know, just staying on college football, the good news is, you know, that's the wonderful thing about college football. The excitement never ends. You know, next week there's um, – I see there's a couple of good games. There's Texas A&M and Alabama, yeah, which could be a good game. Um, there's also uh, – Auburn, Georgia. Is a big at Auburn, Georgia, which, you know, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, who's the second dog in the SEC at the moment? You know yep. –
1: Florida is going to make that case. And a lot of folks think that they might even come out above Alabama in the playoff this year. Um, And it's going to, it's going to be, but that Georgia Auburn is a good rivalry. Anyway, it's lovely to get it in essentially week two of their conference.
2: So you're saying there's a, you're right. I see Florida ranked three. So do you believe this is a year where there could be two SEC teams?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the Pac-12 or the Big Ten. And,
2: um, and then there's my favorite team, as you know, UCF, who I hope runs the table. And I hope UCF finally gets its opportunity.
1: Well, it's a tough year for them to make their case, precisely because of what you said earlier, which is that there's no uh, there's no interconference play. Eric, we're down to just the very last second. Is there a game on the NFL slate that has your attention for next week?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, well, here's one, because here's two teams. I'd be thrilled to hear your Massey Peabody rankings. I don't think Pittsburgh's that good. Um, they've beaten three teams, but they're 0-9, their comp- opponents. I don't think Tennessee's that good. They have a total win of plus six, except they're playing each other. So I'm interested yes. to see Pittsburgh play Tennessee, the battle of two and 3-0 teams, neither of which I think is that good.
1: That That is a wonderful setup for that game. We actually do kind of believe in Pittsburgh. We have them number seven in the league. Now, this is without last night's game in there, but number seven and sneaking up a little bit with every week. All right, guys, that's all the time we have for today. That has been another Wharton Moneyball for Eric Bradlow over there for Adi and Shane who are out and about. This has been Cade Massey. Many thanks to Matty D, our producer, Deion Simpkins, our associate producer, and to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports.
2: Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is the second hour of the show. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Cade Massey and I talked in the first hour about the NBA, the NHL, tennis, uh, NCAA football, etc. In the second hour, it'll be me and my co host and colleague from the stat department, Professor Adi Weiner. Um, we're going to be talking mostly about baseball, since we're the two baseball guys, and that's what you listeners on Wharton Moneyball would want Adi Weiner and Eric Bradlow to talk about. But before we get to that, Adi, um, since today's Tuesday and we did some of the virtual Zoom yesterday, um, we did have something that happened in the COVID world that got announced today. So, you know, since you're our COVID expert, maybe you'd like to talk, take us through. Yeah,
0: along. sure. I, I just discovered it this morning yesterday. I wasn't able to join you um, for your conversation for the because of the holiday, but I, I opened up the newspaper to find that the NFL um, had a breakout. I think in Tennessee Titans, they had three players and five staff members. Um, that by itself isn't particularly, you know, either surprising or potentially eventful. Um, the NFL is, of course, uh, not in a bubble, and they're they're traveling, and there's parts of the country with, with significant outbreaks and, and uh, particularly in, in the age group of the players, although I think they, I think may have traced it to a, to a, um, its origins to a, a coach, potentially. Um, and the MLB, as we've known, has managed to sort of deal with these outbreaks, but they have far more flexibility as they play every day. And there's, there's off days and you can schedule. With the NFL, that's a much more Tricky um, scheduling and, and what, they, what impact it will have on the rest of the season is, is yet to be determined. But I think it's an actual it's an actual um, opportunity to learn something because NFL is a close contact sport, and they played Minnesota on Sunday. And the real question is: Minnesota has now been shut down too. Um, the real question is: what will happen? And if nothing happens which I'm actually cautiously optimistic about. I think aerosol transmission is the most likely um, culprit for transmitting um, uh, COVID from one person to the other. And I think it has to have some some relatively close conversation with someone to really breathe in their air. I'm hopeful that it doesn't, but but it's an opportunity to learn
2: something. Yeah, well, this is an interesting test of, if you'd like, is kind of what I would call proximity, Mm -hmm. duration, and let's call it, you know, channel of transmission. Yep, and yep. we're going to see some combination. Like there's no doubt people in football are close to each other and proximate, yep. mm-hmm. but for short periods of time.
0: Ridiculously short. You know, much, ridiculously how short. How much contact in football, how much play time in football is actually play? I mean, it's an hour on the clock. It's a two and a half hour, three hour game. How? This just point out how much actual game is there? Do we know the answer to that? I'm sure Cade knows, right?
2: Well, we do minutes? know there's 60 minutes of, clock time we know yeah. that we know yeah. the game is an hour in length that people are playing but you know there's also huddle time yeah Look, here's nice. what's interesting as i said it's an interesting combination of degree of exposure physical closeness uh, time of exposure trans method of transmission but it's also i'd be interested like if well let me ask you a question if you had to predict spread would you predict more spread on the same team because of players you've huddled with or would you expect more spread to the other team in who you've had kind of, let's call it, oomph contact with? All right, so, so we, should, we should settle
0: on our answers in our head, and, and uh, I'd like to hear what you have to think. So I'll start. I got mine. Um, you have yours, okay. So I am, would expect inter-team, intra-team transmission to be by far the more likely um, possibility. And not only huddle time, where they're, where they're sitting there within their faces with each other and talking, but it's really just the time in the, on, the, on the bench, the time in the locker room, the time in travel. This is where things happen. And also, humans are humans. They will not follow the guidelines. They will definitely do what they are told not to do in certain appreciative numbers, they'll have close up conversations with each two saying, it's small chance, of course it's small chance, any given pair is a small. Lots and lots of pairs. When you multiply a large number times any small. Yeah, I was just, I was the same
2: way as you. It's just, it's more players, potentially close space, longer duration and i'm you know the fact that you're not necessarily physically hitting into somebody during that period of time which thanks to matt matt that's our producer it's 11 minutes 11 minutes Um, but at the end of the day i just think the time of exposure the amount of exposure the number of people with potential exposure will dominate the i'll call it physical smashing into that's right i
0: think what happens in a visual smash you could get an actual transmission of bodily
2: fluid Right, that's um, what I meant.
0: Which is, which is uh, the kind of thing which is uh, on a, is, is obviously uh, a high probability. I would, if I'm going to put the my expectations on the on
2: the on the paper right now, I would say that I would I'm going to be surprised if Minnesota has. What's it. actually interesting about it was the NFL announced we're hoping to, con- to have both teams play their game Sunday, and the, but then they said this is the part that was just quizzical to me. But if not Monday, I'm thinking. Like, <laughs> yeah, what's the difference? Well, why don't we yeah. just wait? Why don't we just wait till Sunday at? Why don't we play on the Sunday at four o'clock games instead of the Sunday at one o'clock there games? I mean, there magically happen between Sunday and Monday? But you are right in the sense of um, they don't have the flexibility in the schedule. And what may end up happening is, look if. Look, we we all want this to continue going. What may end up happening is those teams, well, it could be on a bye week, or those teams may end up playing 15 games and the other teams play 16 games. That can happen.
0: That can happen. But they also, you know, one of the things we don't know, because they keep this information pretty close, um, they don't tell you what kind of case it is. A case can be asymptomatic, it can be a false positive, and it can be a full-blown case of COVID. It could be mild, it could be medium, severe, etc. They don't tell you any of that information. The 77 uh, that was measured in one of the teams earlier was a false positive. We know exactly why. False positives do occur, and, and when you get a batch of them, seven could be a false two. We don't even know. Um, so keep our eyes on, the, on on this for the next few days. Um, early in the, in the intake, take, um, in intake phase at baseball, a couple people were tested who they repeatedly tested negative almost immediately. False positives occur. We'll see what happens.
2: I would assume part of what's going to happen, and then let's move on to baseball, if you'd like, which is the sport that Cade and I didn't talk about in the first hour, Mm -hmm. which you and I were promised our fans at Ward Moneyball, we talked about in the second hour. But I think the part that you're bringing up is it does matter. Like, forget, obviously, positive, negative, false. Of course, false, positive, negative matters. But I just mean, I think you and I both believe the larger the dose in quotes that you receive, probably the more likely you are to both be symptomatic and mm-hmm. more likely to actually be a transmitter. In other words, if that's true, then we kind of don't care about the details of these seven, of these three players and five coaches. Yes, like it, it does, does matter. matter. Mm-hmm. All so, right. Let's move, on. Let's move on to uh, baseball. Uh, obviously, the playoffs are going on right as we're recording right now and, uh, yeah. and recording our show at Wharton Moneyball. And again, um, I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm joined by my co-host, friend and colleague, Professor Adi Weiner of the Statistics Department. Um, if you want to ask us a question at any time during the week, of course, and by the way, I was a very active tweeter during last night's NFL game. Uh, you can tweet to us at, at @wMoneyball, And you can also, um, you can always uh, email our show at radio at com. So you can always uh, email us and we'll kind of get the, get the question and go through it throughout the week. So, Adi, you had done some analysis. You told me, or at least some thoughts, before we get into the details. I got a lot of questions for you about war. So, wins above replacement, and most people would say, "Well, what's the difference? Short season, long season? You know, I can compute war for. Can I just compute war? Like, let me just do some simple math. They played sixty games. They normally play one sixty-two can't i basically just multiply by about 2.6 something and just take the war and multiply it by 2.6 and there's my projection for 162 okay so th- th- just get let's get to the bottom this here
0: um, and th- because it's very complicated i'll start right up with the first first number well let me give you a little background about war What's really kind of bugging me is that war has become the elite statistic in Major League Baseball now. It's replacing so many of the other statistics that you and I have enjoyed and discussed for many years. So much so that if that players today are just simply talked about by their war. And if you just grab the hitters, the best seasons are Jose Ramirez, Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, Fernando Tatis. You have to go all the way down to 14 to find someone like Juan Soto who by traditional metrics had one of the all-time greatest, you know, sh- obviously short, season in history and dominates on the, on the hitting side, everybody else. So how does he end up at number 14? And so that's the first question.
2: Well, I can, let me, let's just play question and answer. I'll give you my, I, I haven't looked at the data. Mm-hmm. Um, his fielding's no good. That's one possibility. Yep. The other possibility, so we could look at an offensive and a defensive war. The other possibility is that the things that he's good at, the traditional metrics... Don't actually map directly to war. And so that's another possibility is that, you know, it's kind of like apples and oranges. One is the traditional metrics of the apples, the war is the orange. And so sure, he's doing great on apples, but those don't lead to the oranges. So those are my two potential theories.
0: So, so, so let's, to answer that, let's just, let me just go through what happens to make a war. Because okay. no one knows this. And this is, I think, very important to our, to Someone our listeners. Someone knows this. Somebody knows. But the general listenership that we have, uh, I think, doesn't really understand how war gets calculated. What people understand is what it's supposed to represent. So, okay. in fact, uh, war stands for wins above replacement. And in many a conversation that I've had with, for example, with Sam Andre Cohen from the Nationals, he, he, he likes to describe war as a, as a great concept. Execution? Uh, but a great. it's the right question because what it does is it integrates all aspects of your performance and it puts it on the same scale, which is essentially wins above replacement. And just to tell you I will, uh, from, uh, that almost every team has its own version of the calculation. The public is faced with only two providers, baseball prospectus, who, uh, for example, Neil Payne had a very significant input into its construction. And fan graphs are the two versions of war, and they and they actually can diverge somewhat.
2: But let's just okay. Well, just through. give us yeah, Give us the yeah. brief summary of so what I have an idea about how I would compute war, but I don't want to okay. give mine away yet. All right. So this is how, how they compute. How would you it. actually compute war?
0: Right, so they, what the first they do is they is they start with a uh, with a traditional runs composite, and there are many of them, and they're very similar. So you basically take your batting events. They give them weights, they summarize them, and they convert that number into runs. And you can either do that by a weighted on base average or a runs created metric. These are they're, and they and they and these are things for which there's very little debate. And these are counting stats. So they begin, they start with your actual statistics, and then they put weights on them. And the weights you can argue about, but they are fixed. And they create a statistic which is of which there's no argument. There are some various different. Argument about how how you put the weights on, but they're, these are counting stats, and they are not estimates of, of, of something they just exist okay now that 's the first step and that 's great and that and that they usually measure that in runs right and there 's a, a rule of thumb that about ten runs produces a win but here 's the first thing that they do which is which is a statistical operation. they adjust those numbers depending on three quantities the year, so the season they, in other words they don 't like. You know, a a 400 batting average can mean one thing in 1980 and it's something else in 2020. Mm -hmm. So they adjust by what they call era, um, the era. They adjust by league and they adjust by ballpark. And all these things are done with a statistical estimation procedure. Particularly dangerous is the ballpark estimation, because these are notoriously difficult to put your finger on with, with accuracy and they vary a lot. So they usually do sliding five window averages. And even when you, when you adjust for it, there's no, there's no statistically, uh, statistical consensus on how to do that. And when you do it in a short season, your estimates are wobbly. They have very large standard errors. So, so this, actually stack, relate,
2: this about, relates very well to the topic that Kate and I were having in the first hour, not about war, but about variability. Mm And increased variability in a shortened season and the role that this increased variability can have. And and you're pointing out, especially if you're doing annual adjustments or yearly adjustments, Mm -hmm. um, maybe year by ballpark. It's like a ballpark effect in this year versus a different year. Well, those things are all going to be measured with greater error.
0: That's right. And so they make an adjustment of this pure hitting stat based on era, league, and ballpark. Now, at league, this year probably is a less significant thing than it's been in the past, because the National League had to have an adjustment, because particularly on the, not on the hitting side so much, but on the pitching side, because one out of, you know, 15 at-bats was uh,
2: So was go, let's go back to my original question. Is it okay for me to take someone's war based on a 60-game season and just do a linear projection? To 162, and I understand that's not the way you would actually compute it, but is that going to be approximately okay? So, like for example, you've taught me enough that a war in a full season, like above 10, is is a phenomenal year. So, would somebody who had a war of like four this year would that be a huge number? Given it's you know 40 percent of the season. So, so there's
0: a couple of things that are hard to do because because remember, war is an estimator. So if you think about it, there's a true war, but the observed war is, is, is the true plus noise. The, the, and, and what happens, and then of course, if you try to project that, so if I call the the true war theta, the noise uh, epsilon, what you're observing is theta plus epsilon. If you try to multiply that by say three, or some a little lower than three, you're gonna get an overly inflated uh, value at the end because there's of course regression to the mean. Um, whatever extra if you're a bit on the high side in your estimator in the first half part of the season so just to make
2: sure everyone's clear what Adi's talking about which is a great example not just for sports but I always talk about this as an example in business just for 10 Mm -hmm. seconds I say I always play this game with my MBA students I say let's imagine you're a good salesperson and you've had a great year and your boss goes to you I got good news for you and you go sure what is it I go I'm going to assign you the top 10% of our customers. And he's like, great. Oh, and by the way, um, not only I'm going to take last year's figure, and because you're so good, I'm going to tell you you need to do 20% better than last year on the top 10%. And they're like, sure, that seems great. I'm a 20% growth guy. Yeah, except you took the last people last year who are the true sales plus error, Mm -hmm. and now you've scaled it up. You haven't taken any regression into the mean into account. So your point about linear estimation is, Part of the war that makes these people so high is an error part, and that wouldn't extend over the entire season. And you'd almost always overestimate their annual war from the top end and possibly too low from the bottom end. From the bottom end. So
0: if you actually were to make a forecast, you'd have to do some kind of accounting for that regression, and you'd push everybody slightly towards the mean. So someone who had the best war season on the hitter side this year um, is around a three and a half war. You wouldn't multiply them by
2: let's say three that's way too high um so let me ask a question do you think a topic you and i love talking about and then i'd like to move on to some other questions about baseball um when someone's thinking of when we're thinking of hall of fame for some players mm-hmm. should we take into account like i hate to say it like we have to add their average war and multi like i don't know let's say it's a player who does who ends up with a 50 war and you know we say mm-hmm. well it's yeah but if they had played this whole season all right like, that's a five good question more
0: that's a good question. Do we get to – does Willie Mays and Ted Williams get their years back, given give to the armed services? Um, they do for me. They Look, do for I, you. For
2: every minute that I've spent, <laughs> thinking yeah. about, wow, if Ted Williams had played those five years yeah. and we added on to his 521 home runs, he'd be the home run king, or he'd be well over 700 probably. He'd be right. easily at 4,000 hits probably. And I do that – I, I I do that all the time, right? I mean, it's a funny
0: business. Do we get to does Does Babe Ruth get five years that he spent pitching and hitting? Yes, goal, right? he'd have nine hundred. runs 900 home runs. Right, right. Does Mickey Mantle get a knee injury repaired by modern surgery that
2: he lost in? That oh, wow, now thing, you're right? getting now you're getting crazy there. Now me. you're getting
0: crazy. But I wanted to, I don't want to leave war just yet because the piece of war which is so I think is so confounding is they make uh, what's called a a a, a, a position adjustment. And basically what this works, and it works really on the fielding side, and one of the reasons why Soto is no, didn't, doesn't do well is that he plays left field. And left field, other than uh, first base, is considered the weakest of all the fielding positions. It's not a right field, center field, the, court, the centers, and all the infield positions are important except first base. Center field is very important in the outfield, followed by right field. And left field is insignificant. So what it ends up happening is you get a – a very big penalty, or you can review it as a reward, for playing the important position. So you get penalized if you're at a weak position, fielding position, and you get rewarded if you're at a good position. And they do this based on what I consider to be a complete statistical uh, magic trick. They kind of try to imagine um, what would happen if you moved a center fielder to left field they're they're going to now overperform the way they view that because a center fielder is going to be much better and if you stuck them in left field they're going to outperform and they're going to get exactly what they would have contributed center field they're going to now get that extra and they try to estimate these numbers and so what happens is they try to they add these values based on your position and i think it's a statistical fantasy it's a good point based on your
2: description of war i want to tell you right now i i i'm I, I'm following every piece. Um, this seems like I, I'm putting so much less weight on war than I have, have been have in the past. To. I mean this,
0: this, this fielding adjustment it's and, and then yeah, then there's of course the problem of how do you even evaluate fielding? So you got right you got a hard task of, of actually putting runs on fielding. Then you have this super hard task of making a position adjustment. You have all these park factors and error and league adjustments. So it takes these beautiful counting stacks stats in, in a noble service and just makes an absolute muck out of things. And that's kind of how I view it. And when you make a short season, the error is so large that it should be the last thing we look at. And, and so if I'm looking at today's, you know, champions, I'm blown away by, by the, the basic stuff. And I think we all should be LeMay who's hundred sixty four batting average uh, Soto's uh, 695 slugging percentage and 478 you know, uh, weighted on base percentage. This is what's remarkable, Voight's 22 home runs. These are the performance that we should be looking at. I know that's old-fashioned statistics, but they're reliable. They're not uncertain because of estimation error. And in a short season, it just is a muck.
2: Well, let's, let, this is the perfect transition because it was one of the topics I wanted to talk about. Could you give our listeners... Um, just so you, you know, I, I think you probably know this. That we're both Yankee guys, so we know this. Mm-hmm. Besides Lemayhew only being the fourth Yankee all time to win the batting title, which I was unaware of, uh, Gehrig won a batting title, not surprisingly. Dimaggio won one, Mantle won one. We're talking about you know, Bat- both, uh, you know, this is like the murderer's row of all right. Yankees. Lemayhew's only the fourth Yankee ever to win a batting title. He's also only the second player ever to have the highest batting average in both leagues. And the other guy was Ed Delahanty, who played in the 1880s and 90s Hall of Famer. In all of modern baseball, LeMahieu is the only player to lead both leagues in batting average for a mm-hmm. season. Does, so can you just give us some historical perspective? Like, how great is this guy?
0: Okay, so that's really, it's really remarkable. One of the reasons why it's extremely rare, and think back, um, first of all, in the modern era, batting average isn't valued. And so the, they don't really, players don't try for the batting average as they used to. They used to be the stat in Ted Williams' era. And, and it's, it's the right decision. It's not, for the perspective of playing baseball, you really don't, that's got not the statistics you want to optimize, uh, batting average. Um, and, and one of the reasons why is it's highly variable, right? Because once you put the ball in play, um, a lot of that is affected by things that are out, around you out of your control like where they place the fielders and, 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 and other events. So think back historically, guys like Rod Carew um, would lead the league perennially in batting average. Those guys don't exist anymore. Right. And the ones who did exist tend to play for on one team their entire Well, league. that's
2: the part I thought you were going to yeah. get to. Last yeah. time I checked, Lou Gehrig played for just the Yankees, the Yankees. Joe DiMaggio. Just the that's Yankees, Mickey Mantle. If, if, yeah, if you had moved Joe DiMaggio over to the National League, sure, he might have won a batting title over right. there, so, too. So, so most so great players don't even get the opportunity to play in both right. They didn't
0: switch teams the way they do now. And in the modern era, we don't get that consistency in batting average. So what makes LeMayo so remarkable is he's one of these throwback players who hits for high average, and yet, like a modern player, he switches teams. Um, so it's really it's it's terrific. I mean, one thing we we you and I probably watched a lot of Lemayu in the last couple of years because we watch a lot of Yankees. This is a guy who, who hits where they ain't. He uses the entire field. Yep. He uses opposite. He pulls, and he, he's neutralized this shifting, which has become so destructive in a positive way, I guess, towards batting.
2: So, this is uh, Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co host and friend, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. We're here in the second hour of Wharton Moneyball. Um, please follow us always on Twitter at, at WMoneyball. And Adi and I are sitting here talking about baseball. Let me ask you another question, Adi, in the last few minutes before we take our first break of the hour. Um, one of our colleagues, Shane Jensen, one of our co hosts, always talks about the coin flip nature of various sports, maybe even baseball. Um, The thing that surprised me is I looked at the odds, the Dodgers, I'll I'll give some information to you and you tell me what you think about the following question. The Dodgers are the favorite, okay, to win the uh, MLB title this year. The Blue Jays are tied with the Brewers for last place. If I asked you for the ratio of the Dodgers to the Blue Jays, well, here, I'll give it to you. The Dodgers are plus 350. Plus what three. are the Blue Jays and the Brewers? And the reason I'm asking you is Shane always talks about there being a coin flip nature of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think is the ratio? The Dodgers are plus 350. They're the best. What's the worst team?
0: Okay. So uh, uh, the worst team is probably, remember, there's 16. Well, this is to win it 16 all? Teams, 16 so teams. 16 teams. So the worst team is probably lower than two, two, th- plus 2,000.
2: It's probably about 2,500. Yeah, it turns out it's 3,800. Now, the reason I was thinking about that is that that's over a 10 to 1 kind of ratio there. But that's
0: unlikely. Um, That's because, first of all, First of all, that's a betting line, and that's not. I understand that. I I understand it's the betting line. And so, remember, think about how many rounds there are. So, if if you if you if you take a ten percent difference and multiply it to the you know the tenth power,
2: how many games there are, or whatever it is, that small deviation. No, no, thing, this is the odds to win the World Series.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, if you think of every game, the best team might have a a 54 percent chance of winning, the weaker team forty six percent. If you think about that, gets multiplied by itself repeatedly, and that could actually end up with a fairly large multiple. I believe that that's probably taking into account just the gambler's, you know, inclinations. I think there's probably an enormous amount of over betting on the Dodgers.
2: Either way, it just seemed like the fact that there was a 10, over 10 to 1 betting odds, I understand, but over a 10 to 1 ratio there just seemed to me to be extraordinarily it seemed extraordinary maybe over a little bit of overconfidence on the Dodgers and maybe a little bit of underconfidence on the you know I'll list all the teams under 3,000 the actually, Astros actually, the, honestly, the uh, Astros the if Astros, be betting, the Cardinals the Marlins the Brewers and the Blue Jays if I were
0: betting I would put money on the long shots um and uh bet against the Dodgers
2: I, 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 I think I would, too. So uh, this has been the first half of the second half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we've got a you're lot listening to people. Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball for the last quarter of our show. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, colleague, and friend, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every week on Wharton Moneyball. This is obviously the virtual edition that we're recording via Zoom, and of course, we're broadcasting in our regularly scheduled slot and replayed here on SiriusXM throughout the week. And obviously, Adi and I are very excited because the baseball playoffs are starting today. And so we're going to spend the last quarter of the show, given Cade and I talked a lot about NBA, NHL, pro and college football, Adi and I are going to spend the rest of our time talking about uh, baseball. So I was thinking about the following, Adi. I was thinking, I understand these numbers are probably exaggerated, but just to give our listeners a sense, let's imagine that the home, the the better team of two teams playing each other on a neutral field, had a roughly a 55, 45% chance of winning any given game. Okay. That's and a maybe, baseball, by the way, say it again, that's high for baseball. Yeah. All right. Maybe it's 53, 47, whatever. Let's say it's somewhere around there. My, here's my point. A lot of people don't realize, I think, tell me if there's, if the if this logic is correct or if it's flawed, If I'm the weaker of the two teams, the weaker of the two teams, okay? I am happier without the home field advantage because let's say the odds would have been for the better team, 60% chance to win at home, 50% on the road. Now it's 57-53. They have the same mean, but there's lower variation. And if I'm the worst team, I want variation. I want there to be greater variation around the mean, because if everything's purely at the mean, I don't benefit from that as the weaker team. Is that the right logic to think about it? Uh,
0: Actually, uh, I'm not sure that is the right. I mean, in general, yes, you definitely want want variation, but maximum variation in a sport is at 0.5. So, you want to push it as close to point. No, no,
2: what I'm saying, let's fix the mean. So, the mean is that, let's say the mean in both right. cases are the same. And the question is, yes. does, does it shift I mean. it away from that mean yes. or does it shift it less away from the mean because the home field advantage is smaller?
0: What we're about is, is entropy and entropy gets lower as you move away from the mean. Um, so, you don't want 60, you don't want, say, 50, 50, 60, as you'd rather two fifty fives.
2: Right. Yep. And so my comment to you is, would you expect mm-hmm. that given there aren't fans, right. therefore things aren't getting pulled to the extremes as mm-hmm. much as they were, yep. do you expect to see more upsets than we would if there had been fans, which we could argue would lead to a greater home field advantage?
0: Yeah, actually, that's what I would expect. Although in baseball, I think it's, it's sufficiently small to not be that particularly noticeable. I saw that Michael Lopez had tweeted out an observation about basketball. Michael Lopez, of course, is the director of analytics for the NFL, mentioning that of all the sports with the largest home field, bas- home field advantage, basketball, um, it's the sport with the greatest sort of topsy-turviness in its playoff structure, where there was exactly no home field advantage.
2: Right. Yeah, 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 Exactly. Let me ask you a question about the design of the playoffs this year. How do you feel about this best of three first round as opposed to, you know, kind of, well, the old model has been this play-in game. Because remember, they also increased the number of teams to eight. It used to be two wild card teams would play each other, and then or two uh, soon to be wild card teams would be the play in game, and then of course that team would make it and advance against the division winners. But now they've increased the number of teams. But you have this best of three first round, all at the t- higher seeded team. How do you feel about that as a design? Like if you're the Dodgers, aren't you saying to yourself, "Wait a second here"? It's terrible. If I'm the Dodgers, the old design. I was getting best of seven and who the hell is going to beat me best of seven. But now, you know, I'm here in the, I'm the Dodgers and I'm playing, you know, I'm playing some weaker team. What the hell's going on here?
0: Absolutely. I think the Dodgers are complete, completely correct. I think the home field advantage, the the team, the best the division winner gets two advantages. They play the weakest team. I think that's the end. They get to play at home. Um, in the playoffs, the gap between the best and the sm- and the weakest is, is, is smaller because of the way you stack your pitching staffs, et cetera. And secondly, um, the home field advantage is not so important because, you know, you lack fans and, and – uh, uh, So you
2: agree, of all years, like if my- I cared about the Dodgers, which as a Yankee fan I don't, but right. if I cared about the Dodgers – I would say this is the worst possible year in some sense to be the one seed. If I had to, like, in other words, their advantages of the one seed are smaller. Their first round series is shorter. They don't have really the home field edge. um, And also you pointed out, I'd love your thoughts about this the assessment of who's the stronger and who the weaker team back to your earlier comments in the first half hour is less because there's more variability. So maybe they're playing a team that's actually pretty damn good. Who just happened to lose some games. Hard to believe the Astros aren't
0: good. Right. I mean, they had a whole bunch of their frontline players did not have good hitting seasons. Um, they, they got, they, they limped into the playoffs, right? Under the current structure. Yep. Uh, but They're still the Astros. <laughs> You know how much you want to discount the fact that there's still the Astros and they, you know, um, they were great last year. So the fact is, is that you know the, the Nationals didn't make it. Um, they they had a tremendous downfall for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's a short, short season, and and given the, sh- the length of the season, I'm still regressing back in some measure to their preseason forecasts.
2: Well, let me give you, that, that's, another, that's another great point is that we should think about, uh, matter of fact, it, of all seasons, and this as you know is how Bayes' rule works, is that in some sense, we have less information in the likelihood, in the data. Mm-hmm. We have to regress more towards the priors this 100%. year of all other years.
0: 100%,
2: more by far. By far, by far. I actually did a little bit of a calculation and uh, I just want to get, I'm, I'm going to give you some numbers. And I want to get you, give you to guess. Okay. So we're in a best of three series. Okay. Like we are. Let's say the better team in any given game is minus 150. Okay. 150. So that, that corresponds to a 0.6 winning percentage, yep. 60%. What chance do you think? Let's assume for the moment, the games are independent. So I get to just multiply probabilities together. What do you think is the chance of a minus 150 team winning a best of three series? Uh, This is the reason I'm bringing this up for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Let's just say the Dodgers are a 60 40 team.
0: I think it's about 75%. So, roughly roughly in that neighborhood.
2: It's actually 65% if you're a minus 150. It gets to 75% if you're minus 200.
0: Oh, so one third. So, you have to be 67%.
2: Yeah, and so my point is, <laughs> by the way, that, that's what I'm saying. So imagine the Dodgers are 60-40. That means they still have a two-thirds chance of losing this first series, which incredible. Which means you're the the one, the one, the
0: three, plus 350 on their winning the World Series is got it way off, way off. Wow. And now, now by the way, just as, as a point of fact for for lines makers. Um, the line is always high because they have to have their edge. So they might be predicting one over, what is it? Three three fifty. So that's one over one, uh, one over 4.5. So that comes in at about 22%. That by itself is a high forecast, but not too much. I would guess if you adjusted for the VIG, that's about 18%. What that probably reflects is the public's willingness to bet on the Dodgers. Right. And desire to bet on the Dodgers. And when the public wants to bet on a favorite, they're willing to essentially take bad
2: odds. And you've actually pointed out, obviously, that's three and a half times, roughly, the Shane Jensen coin flip equal probability rule. And that's the way I like to think about it. They're three times more likely, in someone's view, than the average team would be to win the World Series. And that might be right, but it sounds quite high to me.
0: Did you figure out the, the seven-game series uh, 60-40?
2: I didn't figure out the. I did not do the seven-game series. Uh, I just did three. I just did who's the likelihood of getting out of the first round. And, again, I was even surprised that in a minus 200 per game, which would be extraordinary in baseball, minus 200, especially for both teams being playoff teams, oh God, yeah. that you only get to a 25% winning percentage for the series.
0: That's amazing. And uh, we we can expect some upsets now. A lot happens in the short series, which is nuts because even even the weaker teams have a star pitcher.
2: Well, and you only need two to win a best of three series.
0: That's right. I mean, listen, the Yankees are limping into the into the, the playoffs, but they have Garrett Cole. I mean, come on. I, I I didn't have the best season, but if I were to regress back to preseason forecast, the last four games he pitched 1.00 ERA. Um, you know, three and one. I don't care about winning, but you know, he was dominant. I'm not. If I had to pick one picture
2: to start my series, it's Garrett Cole. Well, so let's let's now move on. We've talked about uncertainty in general. Let's talk about what our listeners here on Morton Moneyball really want to hear about is our assessment of the Yankees. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you a question, and I thought about this a fair amount, but I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, Could you make an argument? that being in the fifth seed out of eight, which is where the Yankees are, which means if everything went to chalk, you play the four. Well, you play the four. There's no chalk needed there. The five is playing the four. If you win and it goes to chalk, you then play the one. And then if you win, it plays, obviously the two would be left over. Is there any rationale? Like sometimes you hear people say, I'd have rather been the seven than the five, because then I would play the two, then the three, and then not the one until the end. But I'm like, you still got to beat them all anyway. You're going to have to beat the one eventually, unless somebody else does anyway. Is there any? I, I was just thinking because I'm sure lots of listeners are saying, "Oh, not the five spot. The five plays the four, and then the one." How do I, you think about that?
0: The way I think about this is that is maybe this is just uh, uh, off the mark. But the way I view this is in baseball, um, you want someone, you want your one to have a few shots of a, a, at least two shots at other teams before you have to play them. That's kind of because there's that knockoff percent, potential. Um, and I think one is going to be the hardest obstacle. But and, and so I would rather have to. I would rather play the one
2: in the last rather than the second. Um, but let's say your goal is to win. You don't care if you get to the first round, second round, World. Se- if you don't win the World, if let's say your goal is, you, is get to the World you, Series, forget winning it. I think,
0: I think it. You, you I think the team that's going to win this actually I, is not going to be the best team. It's the team that's got their way cleared for them by an upset. I see um because i think if the, if the dodgers or the rays were or were the star teams um
2: yeah the dodge well right now to be honest with you, the betting odds have the yankees for some reason as the third most favorite which i'm not quite well it's priors maybe it's priors it's priors, it's priors but it has the dodgers one, the rays two, the yankees three then it has the twins the athletics and the padres right as the next three
0: well, I actually, so I think that, that the, the, the knockoff potential is there. I mean, I, would, I think if, the, if you're going to – if a, a lower-ranked team is going to make it, it's because the Dodgers uh, are going to get knocked off. The Rays are going to get knocked off on the early side. And uh, because, remember, you got to – there's these small chances. I think that any one team is no better than 70% chance of getting
2: – All right, I'm going to give you an over-under. We love doing over-unders on Morton Moneyball. We haven't done some in a while. I'm going to give you an over-under. There are eight first round series. You all agree to that? Yeah, there are. Yep. And there's best of three. You agree to that? Mm -hmm. I just gave you that if it's 60-40 to the favorite, there's a, let's call it a one-third chance. So is your prediction, I'll give you over under, one-third times eight is roughly two and a half. Are we going to get more then two upsets, more than th- three or more upsets in the first round or less than three upsets in the first round, given the odds I just gave you. I just did a calculation that said it's about a third. A third of an eighth is roughly two and a half.
0: more versus two or fewer.
2: So I'm letting you pick over two and a half or yeah. under two and a half.
0: All right. So I'm going to go with... Um, I actually think that the most probable... The problem is this... Um, I think the single most probable outcome single most probable outcome is probably uh three upsets, but that doesn't mean that I want the other side right
2: yeah, three is the most probable, but that doesn't mean the total mass above three is greater than the mass above the sum of zero, one, and two
0: yeah and that's and that's the tricky one because I think it falls off pretty hard after that. I think four upsets is very unlikely um and that, uh, and that one and two may be jointly more than zero, one and two, of course, I think might be jointly more probable than five, four, five and up. Um, even though I think that five is, is the, not the, I mean, three is the modal outcome, I'm still gonna go with the under.
2: Yeah, what's very interesting, I, see, I wouldn't even have done the calculation you did, which is totally appropriate. I've given the, let's call it the probability of upset in any given series, hmm. you multiply that by the number of series and then you get the expected number of upsets. But if you actually look at the probability distribution, mm-hmm. the expectation is a weighted average. That's and right. so zero, one, and two may actually have a very, it's, it's not gonna be a symmetric distribution. Of course it, it can not be. <laughs> yeah, so from a probabilistic perspective, if I'm just giving, that's a great point. Matter of fact, of all the years, so we've been doing Wart and Moneyball together for six and a half years. Have any of us, I don't- Bring that out, no. <laughs> no, no, I can't say I've ever remembered any of us talking about this kind of distribution versus expectation and the asymmetry in that in some sense, you, if, you're, if you're just asked not to make a prediction, I'm just giving you an over under, yeah. you want to take the side with larger mass even if an expectation that might be the wrong thing to do cuz maybe there's a long right tail and sure eight upsets could happen yeah. and that would but if it, you know and that happens with probably, I'll make it up 0.05 well that adds .4 to the expectation but how much come on not i mean it's it's
0: just not likely to happen yeah, i mean i think this is an example where the expected number of upsets is probably three or higher than 3 but i still believe that most of the mass is between zero, one, and 2
2: so how are you feeling about you know the yankees versus the Indians I mean I know we wanted the twins but we didn't get the twins
0: how am I feeling I'm feeling that we have as be- we have uh, at least a 50 percent chance of beating them I don't think we're the underdog
2: but I think the public doesn't either the Yankees are us v- would be a very slight betting favorite very over very slight favorite
0: and only because I think I think they have Cole, Cole will start one game Tanaka will start the second I don't know what goes on the third um let's hope there isn't one Let's hope there isn't one. Uh, Yankees have explosive hitting. Obviously, um, they do. Uh, I, I wouldn't give them much more than 50% chance. If you are the underdogs against the Rays, certainly.
2: So, have you seen any empirics? You know, people always talk about in short series, you know, pitching over hitting. Like, you haven't said, se- like, you just mentioned the Yankees hitting, but you really started with, I'd rather have Garrett Cole, I'd rather have the top pitching... Have you ever looked? Is there any evidence to suggest that pitching beats good hitting in, in playoff series?
0: You know what? It's interesting. I don't recall ever seeing it. I believe somebody has made efforts to go about it the way they usually go about these things. I don't believe there's a strong consensus. Cause I think I would know that I follow the literature in baseball close enough to, um, to see that. I generally think that um, uh, you know, so some, you know, my student um, Jacob Ritchie augmented Elo to actually take into account the performance um, on a player by player basis, and that gave him the opportunity to actually study this. You know, what beats, what beats what? And I generally think that, that his view—I shouldn't speak with certainty because I don't remember it—that I do believe top pitching does beat top hitting um, because, in general, pitching beats hitting. I mean, even the greatest hitters are out—you know, seven out of ten times. Um, and that generally is the case. And I always felt that it's, that that pitchers, weak pitchers are taken advantage of b- better by, by, by better hitters. In other words, what makes it a good hitter, a good hitter is when you throw that meatball, they do a lot with it. And I think that's, that, that some of the modern statistics have, have shown that, that what makes Trout the hitter that he is, is not what he does with pitches outside of the strike zone or that he, or or what or what he does with the pitches in the strike zone, it's that he's got the good enough eye to not
2: use not swing at pitches that he can't do anything with. Do you have when you evaluate, let's say, a a hitter? Do you do what like let's assume uh, he has enough at bats in the postseason? I know I do this all the time. Um, I always look at their postseason hitting in comparison to their regular season hitting with the idea that they're probably only facing better pitchers in the postseason. Is there any logic to that? Or let's even you say take during the regular season, couldn't you look at the batting average against, you know, let's call it certain pitchers versus another like batting average by, I don't know, ERA quintiles or something like break the pitchers up into quintiles and see what someone's batting average is. And what you're suggesting is, which I don't know if this is true, is that better hitters do better against worse pitchers. They don't do any better against better pitchers.
0: Yeah, that would be a way to actually to test, test these multiple hypotheses. As I said, there's, there's literature on it, but I'm not sure I've been overwhelmed by any of the analysis perspectives. Maybe it's an opportunity for someone to do some research. Um, I, think, I think right out of this, uh, this uh, our discussion
2: today will become one of our students' research projects probably immediately going forward. uh, I'd love to see that research and certainly we can talk about it here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Let me ask you the, how much of a disadvantage is it, is it that in some sense, let's take the Dodgers and you have like a seven, normally you'd have a seven game series. They can't pitch their best pitchers. Nobody can twice in a three game series. Like, I mean, maybe, let's imagine the Yankees. I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming of hope. Let's imagine they're up ten to nothing after the fifth inning of this game. So they pull Garrett Cole, and they need someone to get three outs on two days from now. Assuming, by the way, I assume I haven't looked. Are they playing every day? So Tuesday, Wednesday, I Thursday?
0: Think the plan that was the they are supposed to be playing every day.
2: All right, so let's assume they're playing every day. Maybe you maybe on one day's rest, a guy could come back. But essentially, you can't pitch your best pitcher more than yeah, once. We remember Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. I don't want to remember that. I don't want to remember (laughs) 2001. I have no interest in remembering that World Series Uh at all. Um, But do you think it's also, could this, let me ask you a a related question. Would you rather have Garrett Cole, who we both agree is probably one of the best pitchers in baseball, or would you rather, let's call him a 10 out of 10. In this year, would you rather have one 10 or three eights? Three eights. Without hesitation, because of the structure. Because of the structure, I
0: mean it's 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 not hard. It's hard to, for me to believe that they can pitch. I mean, in a three game series, you can't use them. You really can't use them other than once. And in a five game series, uh, no. After this is seven games, I believe, right? After yeah, it's this, going to
2: seven, I believe.
0: Right, and and the, the the using them appropriately more than twice is impossible in a seven game series, where historically you could use them three times.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, if someone's going on three days rest, they can go one, four, seven. And and it used to be three days. Now they, now it's, uh, one, uh, they could
0: do, well, now they can't do it
2: because uh, you, you want, you have only two days rest at the back end. Uh, so how much weight would you also put in, in that in this year, since the season was shorter, would a older veteran team have over a younger team? Meaning, you know, the players just aren't tired. I mean, they only played sixty games. They didn't have the entire dog days of summer. That, in some sense, um, this idea that there's non-stationarity throughout the season is probably just not true here as much. What do you think? Yeah, I
0: think that's. I think that. I'm not sure that rises to the level of being a measurable and influential factor. But I, I think it can happen, certainly on individual bases. Um, the, the season is extremely grueling, as as any baseball player. His biographies will attest to, and this is certainly nothing like it. I mean, they when they when they traveled, they traveled they traveled close um, in re- decent proximity. It was a very short season. I, I bet you know the elder folks. And by the way, for today's baseball baseball players, thirty is an l and is becoming an, an, an upper end. Uh, back in the day, thirty was the, was the your practically your peak. How many players are above thirty today? Um, but the ones that are
2: are probably appreciating it. So, without knowing the scores, let's just in our last two minutes. Um, how would you think about it? Like, who do you do you, do you have any favorites? Like in the AL uh, today, Houston's playing Minnesota, Chicago, Oakland, Toronto, Tampa Bay, and Yankees, Cleveland. Of those four, who do you like? in those, like, who do you like going to the, let's say, AL championship? Why don't we go there? Which two teams are gonna play each
0: other? It's a a tricky business. Uh, The A's are a terrific team. Are they they playoff constructed? Are they ever playoff constructed? I mean, how much of the historical collapse of the Minnesota Twins do we wanna carry forward? My statistical brain says none. Right, but my my baseball
2: heart says all of it. <laughs> well, just to update you, um, at the time of our taping here, the A's are down three to nothing in the seventh inning, and the uh, Twins and Astros are tied one one in the seventh. So we have some interesting. But but you also point out um, your probability, let's say, of the A's. Let's say they were the favorites going in, which they probably were. Losing one game here is catastrophic. Terrible. With That's, your best pitcher losing one, I mean, forget home, yes, but it's catastrophic because now the other team has to win too. There is no, I mean, the weight of each game plays so much importance. Enormous. Uh, to see
0: the Oakland A's down three to nothing is exactly what I, what my heart expects and my brain is disappointed by.
2: Well, this has been our second hour of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-host this afternoon, uh, Adi Weiner. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Um, We've got lots of baseball this week. We've got the NBA finals starting uh, on Wednesday night. We have some, we have obviously NFL, NCAA football going on. Obviously have the French Open tennis going on. So, lots to enjoy. So, between now and next week on Morton Moneyball, we'll see you. If you want to reach us at W Moneyball, between now and then, enjoy your sports.
0: Business radio Brief. In the context of evaluating Nick Saban, given that extra capriciousness, I don't think how many Pro Bowl NFL players came out of Alabama should be part of that evaluation. The probability of recovering an onside kick is actually higher than people naturally believe. You'd have to deconvolve whether it's expected or not
1: expected. I just want to underscore that Shane has already used capriciousness and deconvolve. I practiced in the mirror earlier this morning. You've been hanging out in the UK. <laughs> Are you getting more articulate? I am, actually. Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. MLB Network Radio. For
2: expert baseball talk and analysis, it's MLB Network Radio. Bill Ripken.
1: The longer the dark horses stay in it, the more they believe in things can happen. Jim Duquette. It's so bad. Something has to happen. Todd Hollinsworth.
0: So many different guys are contributing. That is
2: absolutely sustainable. Jim
1: voted. He could have told that lineup, it's coming. It did not matter.
2: Talk baseball with experts from all perspectives on MLB Network Radio. Serious.